Hey ladies, welcome to the Looking Above podcast. It's easy to get bogged down in details of everyday life. If we aren't intentional, our eyes can easily be pulled away from the Lord and we can set our gaze on things of earth. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. My name is Karen Boffman and I'm the women's pastor at New Life Church in Gillette, Wyoming. I believe that our perspective changes everything. So together, we'll be looking above. For the next eight weeks, we'll be digging into the book of John. Now, this is coming out of a ladies' retreat that we just had where we were discussing how we can be unshakable, how we can develop a faith that isn't shaken when the storms of life come against us. And as we ended that retreat, we talked about looking into the book of John and just digging into, pressing into who Jesus is. Because the more we know our Lord, the more we know our Master, the deeper and more unshakable our faith becomes. And so I've encouraged women to just be reading through the book of John. I encourage you to do that with us. Read through the book of John. Today we'll be looking at John chapters 1 and 2, just kind of digging through that and seeing who he is and what we can glean and how that impacts us and helps us to look above what's going on in our day-to-day lives. In the beginning of this chapter 1 of the book of John, John's talking about Jesus as the Word. He says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as we go through this next bit here, we see the Word in action. And we know that the Word it's referring to, Word, is Jesus. But this Word in action, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He had a close personal relationship to God, yet he was distinct from God himself. And he shares the very nature of God and yet was not identical to God. F.F. Bruce says in his commentary on John that the whole gospel should be read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. And so as we look into this, as we're digging into John and we're really looking at who Jesus is, we're seeing who God is. And the better understanding we have of who God is The more we're willing to put our trust and our faith and our hope in him, the more we're willing to plant our lives in him and the more unshakable we will be. John chapter 1 continues and says he existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. Nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. So we get into this section here on light and darkness. Light and darkness are opposites, and yet they're not equals. And I love this imagery that John's using here when he's talking about the light being greater than the darkness. The darkness can never extinguish it. And often in scripture, we hear this word light, and it refers to the goodness and truth of God, whereas the darkness is evil and falsehood. And he's saying that no matter what darkness comes against us, it can't extinguish the light that Jesus brings into our lives. As we move forward and to verse 9, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, continues to talk about this real or genuine light that Jesus is, the true light who gives light to everyone. Jesus was the real light. 
you know, there are partial lights, there are false lights, there are flickering lights out there. But Jesus, he's the real deal. He's the authentic light and the one that guides us on our way as we go through life. And he gives light to everyone. He wasn't just for one people group as the Jews expected him to be, but he was for everyone. He gives his love and his light to each and every one of us. What does that do for us in our day-to-day lives as we consider the fact that we're living in this dark and fallen world? It's that we have this light that we can reach out to, that we can grasp a hold of, that we can draw on, that sheds light into the darkness. And then we, in turn, as his disciples, become that light in our communities, in our world, in our families. Women, we have the opportunity to be the light of Jesus as we go forth, as we tap into who he is, and as we live in his light, we continue to share that light with others. It goes on, but to those who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They're reborn not with a physical rebirth resulting from human passion and plan, but a birth that comes from God. When we see Jesus, when we see who he was, and we believe that God is like Jesus, Jesus is like God, then we begin to submit ourselves to God and we become his children. Now, there's two kinds of children. There's the kind of child who just takes everything that home has to offer and gives nothing in return. And then there's the one who realizes what the father is doing and what has been lavished upon him and grows closer to the father. So we can either, as children of God, grow towards our father or away from our father. We have the opportunity to be sons and daughters, to tap into what our father has to offer us, and as we do that, to grow towards him. I love this chapter. I love how as we continue through chapter one, we see all these different images of who Jesus is and these different um, attributes of who Jesus is. In verse 14, it says the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we've seen his glory, the glory of the father's one and only son. The word that we heard back in verse one of this chapter actually became a person, was seen with human eyes. He lived here in earth, in flesh, and yet gave us this fullness, this full depiction of who the Father was. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we know that love and faithfulness are two attributes of God. And whatever God is, God is that perfectly and infinitely. And so we saw this in the humanity of Jesus. We saw the fullness of God's love and the fullness of his faithfulness. Those attributes should make us fall in love with him more and more as we just set our eyes on who he is and on this tremendous love that he has, that he had for us that caused him to carry out his mission, that caused him to continue um, to walk among men, to walk in this darkness as the light. It was all precipitated and motivated by his great love for us. In Jesus, we see God living life as God would have lived life as a man because Jesus was God and Jesus was a man. And in that, we have this ultimate example for how we live. Jumping way down to verse 29, this section talks about Jesus as the Lamb of God. As we talk about Jesus as the Lamb of God, uh, there are several different references to lambs throughout Scripture. One is the Passover lamb, you know, that was the one that was the sacrifice. And as we see Jesus being referred to as the Passover lamb, he is the ultimate, the one true sacrifice sent to deliver us from our death and from what we deserved. 
Lambs were also given in Old Testament times as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. We hear the phrase lamb to the slaughter in through the uh, prophetic scriptures. And then there was also this image of the horned lamb, which was a symbol of a conqueror. And we can see in all four of those, Jesus, that one word lamb sums up his love for us, his sacrifice for us, his suffering and his triumph. And it's um, John the Baptist who's referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God. In, lamb of God. in verse 29, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is the one I was talking about when I said a man coming after me who is far greater than I am for he existed long before me. John's pointing towards Jesus, this Lamb of God. And John knew that his ministry was simply to prepare the way, to point towards Jesus. And now he has this opportunity to testify, this is the one I've been talking about. This is the Lamb of God, the one who's going to be the ultimate sacrifice for you, the one who was the ultimate sacrifice for us. A few verses later, we see Jesus encountering his first disciples. And as um, they're walking down the road, and John the Baptist says, again, there, look, there's the Lamb of God in verse 36. And a couple of his disciples heard this, and they started to follow Jesus. And Jesus turns around, and he asks them, you know, what do you, what do you want? And they say, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus' response to them is, come and see. Jesus makes this invitation to them. It's not just like, let's talk, like, like I'm going to tell you where I'm staying, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing, but he says, come and see. It's an invitation to follow him and to learn more about him. And I think that's so amazing for us as his followers to have that same come and see mentality. When people ask you about your faith and about who Jesus is to you and what he means and what he's doing in your life, when they ask you, why do you go to church? Our whole response simply needs to be come and see. Just come and see for yourself. See what he's done in my life. See what he's doing in my church. See what um, what he has done for me that he could do for you. We go a little further here in verse 40, and Andrew has um, encountered Jesus. He heard these other men, and then he comes and he follows Jesus. And what was Andrew's first response after encountering Jesus? He went and found his brother, and he said, we have found the Messiah. After one afternoon with the man Jesus, he knew that this was the man who fulfilled everything that he had been learning about his entire life. I wonder what your first response was when you encountered Jesus. Was your first response like Andrew to go and tell others? And if not, why not? I think these scriptures invite us into deeper relationship with Jesus because I think sometimes our relationship with Jesus has so often been based on what we see of others or what we hear from a pastor, what we hear on a podcast, what we uh, read in a book. And these men went and they followed him. They lived with him. They did it. They experienced it. And as soon as they experienced him, they wanted to tell others about it. So as we continue through this book of John, I just invite you to look deeply into who Jesus was and have that own experience for yourself. Experience Jesus in the first person. Who is he to you? And what does that cause as a response in your life? Because our response ought to be like Andrew, to want to go and encourage and invite others to meet him as well. So Andrew brings his brother Simon and they meet Jesus and Jesus looks intently, it says in verse 42, at Simon. And he says, your name Simon is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas. 
that word intently. That's how Jesus looks at us. He sees into our hearts. He saw not only who Simon was in that moment, but he saw who he could be. And this is why he gave him this new name, this new identity. Jesus knew who he was becoming. Who are you becoming? Who are others becoming? I think Jesus invites us into that same journey to speak into others as his followers. And so as you join together, maybe with your life group or with a discussion group, when you talk to your friends, Encourage us to be more like Jesus and just seeing the potential in others and calling that out in them. Do you see who they could become? Not where they're now, not where they have been in the past, but who it is that Jesus has created them to be and speaking life into them, calling them into their future, just like Jesus did here with Simon. We're going to flip forward to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we start and we see Jesus at the wedding of Cana. And this is the first time that we see Jesus really Using his powers, this is the first miracle he's performing. Um, They're at this wedding celebration. He's there with his mom and his disciples, and the wine supply runs out, and his mother comes to him and basically tells the servants, do whatever my son says to you. And the first thing I want to note, and this isn't about Jesus, but I love that his mother was his first true disciple. Because before all of this, she trusted what the Lord told her about her son. She knew who her son was because that angel had spoken to her. And so she comes to him in faith saying, I haven't seen him perform any miracles, but I know he can do it. I know who he is. I know what he is about. And so she comes to her son and just brings these guys and says, you know, just do whatever he says. And his response is, my time has not yet come. Jesus lived his life on this earth with such focus on his ultimate purpose. It was not yet time for the full manifestation of his glory, and he knew that. And so, but yet he was living with purpose. And as his disciples, as those who are pressing into him, as those who are looking above the day to day, we're also called to live with purpose, to live into what God has called us to do and who he has created us to be. It says standing nearby, there were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus tells the servants, go fill them with water. Then he tells them, dip some out. Already he's turned it into wine and they take it to the head waiter. And he tastes the wine and recognizes that this is probably the best wine he's ever had. Now, six 20 to 30 gallon jars, that's 120 to 180 gallons of wine, more than any wedding party could have ever consumed. Jesus, in his first miracle, is showing his lavish grace. Another attribute of God, the grace that he pours out upon us that we don't deserve, and yet he does it so perfectly and so infinitely. We, we can't even comprehend 120 to 180 gallons of wine. It was so simple for him. And yet he's showing us, even in this story, that Jesus still does this today. Life without him is dull and stale and flat like the water in those washing jars. But with him, it just gains this sparkle, this excitement, this joy, this passion, and this lavish grace that God pours out on us. After the wedding, he uh, went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother and brothers and his disciples. I wonder what happened in those days. I think about this and I think, you know, we don't have any idea what happened. But after this first manifestation of his glory, Jesus stepped away for a few days. 
And as we set ourselves to looking above, to looking above what's going on in our society and in our homes and in our churches and in our communities, I think so often we neglect this. We don't do like Jesus did and just take that time away. Take that time to get away with our friends or our family, with our Heavenly Father, like we see Jesus do all throughout the scriptures. That's how we look above the rest of this, is that sometimes we need to turn off the noise. Sometimes we need to turn off the news or the social media, whatever it is that's screaming at us, and take that time away like Jesus did here. After this time away, he comes back. He's probably reset and ready to go. He comes into Jerusalem. He enters the temple. And this is that famous scene where we see Jesus get so very angry. And it's a side of Jesus that we don't often see. And yet, of of course, again, he's revealing his father in that. He's also confirming prophecies that we see throughout the Old Testament in Malachi and Zechariah as he makes a whip from some ropes and he chases all the animals out of the temple. He scatters money and overturns tables. He says, get get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Jesus acted this way because God's house was being desecrated because There was no animal sacrifice that could put men right with God. And he knew that his time was coming when the whole sacrificial system was going to be turned on its head. He also did this because this was the temple court, and this was the only place where the Gentiles could come to worship. It's the only place where they they were allowed to enter. They weren't allowed to go into the inner courts. And it was being used as a marketplace. It was keeping them from the potential of drawing near. As we we think about this temple scene, I, I think about how Jesus would react today. As we look forward, you know, in our New Testament theology, our New Testament thinking, of course, we are the body of Christ and we are the temple. We are the tabernacle. We are the ones in which Christ dwells. And so how would Christ respond to my care and use of his dwelling place, to my care and use of his body? As he he flips over these tables, it makes me think, what, what would he say to me? Am I using my body, his dwelling place, the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that I honor him and that others can draw near to him as they draw closer to me? The Jewish leaders uh, get kind of upset with Jesus here, of course, because he's basically claiming to be God's son. And they come at him and they, you know, what are you doing? And if God gave you the authority to do this, show us the miraculous sign to do it. In verse 18, their reaction, they're saying, okay, you claim to be the Messiah by your actions, but prove it now. Do something miraculous. Do a miraculous sign. And we do this too, don't we? We have an encounter with God. We have an encounter where clearly the Lord is speaking to us, and then we question it immediately. And we say, God, you know, if that was you, just uh, show me. Give me a sign. Just exactly like they do. They ask for a sign, and we do this so often. And yet what we're being called to is faith. We look at, at how so many of the people responded to the miraculous signs that he did to the to what he did here in the temple and it says that many began to trust in him but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew human nature and it's sad to me that he knows how fickle we are and i wonder can Jesus trust us are we 
living in such a way that our faith is shown through our actions. We don't prove our faith by our words. We prove our faith by the way that we live. The people claimed to have faith because of what they had seen, but they were really just impressed by the miracles. Just look back on these these couple of chapters, and we think about what Jesus did and how miraculous it was. I encourage you to look beyond the miracles and see who he was, to think back about this Lamb of God, this light of the world, the one who who turned the water into wine as this extravagant grace. I encourage us as we go forward and we live our weeks looking above to continue to just set your eyes on Jesus, the one who loves you, the one who is shedding light into the darkness of your days, the one who is showing you his lavish grace over and over again, and we're neglecting to see it. Keep your eyes open, keep looking for that grace, and keep looking above. 